Letter seven of Clarissa Harlowe, volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Clarissa Harlowe, volume four, by Samuel Richardson. Letter seven. Miss Clarissa Harlowe to Miss Howe, Monday night, May first. I have just escaped from a very disagreeable company. I was obliged, so much against my will, to be in as a very particular relation of this evening's conversation would be painful to me. You must content yourself with what you shall be able to collect from the outlines, as I may call them, of the characters of the persons, assisted by the little histories Mr. Lovelace gave me of each yesterday. The names of the gentlemen are Belton, Mowbray, Tourville, and Belford. These four, with Mrs. Sinclair, Miss Partington, the great heiress mentioned in my last, Mr. Lovelace and myself, made up the company. I gave you before the favourable side of Miss Partington's character, such as it was given to me by Mrs. Sinclair and her nieces. I will now add a few words from my own observation upon her behaviour in this company. In better company, perhaps, she would have appeared to less disadvantage. But notwithstanding her innocent looks, which Mr. Lovelace also highly praised, he is the last person whose judgment I would take upon real modesty. For I observe that upon some talk from the gentleman, not free enough to be easily censured, yet too indecent in its implication to come from well-bred persons, in the company of virtuous propel, sick. This young lady was very ready to apprehend, and yet by smiles and simperings, to encourage, rather than discourage, the culpable freedoms of persons who, in what they went out of their way to say, must either be guilty of absurdity, meaning nothing, or meaning something of rudeness. But indeed I have seen no women, of whom I had a better opinion than I can say of Mrs. Sinclair, who have allowed gentlemen, and themselves too, in greater liberties of this sort, than I thought consistent with that purity of manners, which ought to be the distinguishing characteristic of our sex. For what are words but the body and dress of thought? And is not the mind of a person strongly indicated by outward dress? But to the gentlemen, as they must be called in right of their ancestors, it seems, for no other do they appear to have, Mr. Belton has had university education, and was designed for the gown, but that not suiting with the gaiety of his temper, and an uncle dying, who devised to him a good estate, he quitted the college, came up to town, and commenced fine gentleman. He is said to be a man of sense. Mr. Belton dresses gaily, but not quite foppishly, drinks hard, keeps all hours, and glories in doing so, games, and has been hurt by that pernicious diversion. He is about thirty years of age. His face is a fiery red, somewhat bloated and pimply, and his irregularities threaten a brief duration to the sensual dream he is in, for he has a short consumption cough, which seems to denote bad lungs, yet makes himself and his friends merry, by his stupid and inconsiderate jests, upon very threatening symptoms which ought to make him more serious. Mr. Mowbray has been a great traveller, speaks as many languages as Mr. Lovelace himself, but not so fluently, is of a good family, seems to be about thirty-three or thirty-four, tall and comely in his person, bold and daring in his look, is a large-boned, strong man, has a great scar in his forehead with a dent, as if his skull had been beaten in there, and a seamed scar in his right cheek. He likewise dresses very gaily, has his servants always about him, whom he is continually calling upon, and sending on the most trifling messages, half a dozen instances of which we had, in the little time I was among them, while they seemed to watch the turn of his fierce eye to be ready to run, before they have half his message, and serve him with fear and trembling. Yet to his equals the man seems tolerable. 
he talks not amiss upon public entertainments and diversions especially upon those abroad yet has a romancing air and averse things strongly which seem quite improbable indeed he doubts nothing but what he ought to believe for he jests upon sacred things and professes to hate the clergy of all religions he has high notions of honour a word hardly about of his mouth but seems to have no great regard to morals mr tourville occasionally told his age just turned of thirty-one he is also of an ancient family but in his person and manners more of what i call the coxcomb than any of his companions he dresses richly would be thought elegant in the choice and fashion of what he wears yet after all appears rather tawdry than fine one sees by the care he takes of his outside and the notice he bespeaks from every one by his own notice of himself that the inside takes up the least of his attention he dances finely mr lovelace says is a master of music and singing is one of his principal excellencies they prevailed upon him to sing and he obliged them both in italian and french and to do him justice his songs in both were decent they were all highly delighted with his performance but his greatest admirers were mrs sinclair miss partington and himself to me he appeared to have a great deal of affectation mr tourville's conversation and address are insufferably full of those really gross affronts upon the understanding of our sex which the moderns call compliments and i intended to pass for so many instances of good breeding though the most hyperbolical unnatural stuff that can be conceived and which can only serve to show the insincerity of the complimenter and the ridiculous light in which the complimented appears in his eyes if he supposes a woman capable of relishing the romantic absurdities of his speeches he affects to introduce into his common talk italian and french words and often answers an english question in french which language he greatly prefers to the barbarously hissing english but then he never fails to translate into this his odious native tongue the words and the sentences he speaks in the other two lest perhaps it should be questioned whether he understands what he says he loves to tell stories always calls them merry facetious good or excellent before he begins in order to bespeak the attention of the hearers but never gives himself concern in the progress or conclusion of them to make good what he promises in his preface indeed he seldom brings any of them to a conclusion for if his company have patience to hear him out he breaks in upon himself by so many parenthetical intrusions as one may call them and has so many instants springing in upon him that he frequently drops his own thread and sometimes sits down satisfied half-way or if at other times he would resume it he applies to his company to help him in again with a devil fetch him if he remembers what he was driving at but enough and too much of mr tourville mr belford is the fourth gentleman and one of whom mr lovelace seems more fond than any of the rest for he is a man of tried bravery it seems and this pair of friends came acquainted upon occasion of a quarrel possibly about a woman which brought on a challenge and a meeting at kensington gravel pits which ended without unhappy consequences by the mediation of three gentlemen strangers just as each had made a pass at the other mr belford it seems is about seven or eight and twenty he is the youngest of the five except mr lovelace and they are perhaps the wickedest for they seem to lead the other three as they please mr belford as the others dresses gaily but has not those advantages of person nor from his dress which mr lovelace is too proud of he has however the appearance and air of a gentleman he is well read in classical authors and in the best english poets and writers and by his means the conversation took now and then a more agreeable turn and i who endeavoured to put the best face i could upon my situation as i passed for mrs lovelace with them made shift to join in it at such times and received abundance of compliments from all the company on the observations i made mr belford seems good-natured and obliging 
and although very complacent, not so fulsomely so as Mr. Tourville, and has a polite and easy manner of expressing his sentiments on all occasions. He seems to delight in a logical way of argumentation, as also does Mr. Belton. These two attacked each other in this way, and both looked at us women, as if to observe whether we did not admire this learning, or when they had said a smart thing, their wit. But Mr. Belford had visibly the advantage of the other, having quicker parts, and by taking the worst side of the argument, seemed to think he had. Upon the whole of his behaviour and conversation, he put me in mind of that character of Milton. His tongue dropped manner, and could make the worse appear, the better reason, to perplex and dash maturer's counsels, for his thoughts were low, to vice industrious, but to nobler deeds timorous and slothful, yet he pleased the ear. How little soever matters in general may be to our liking, we are apt, when hope is strong enough to permit it, to endeavour to make the best we can of the lot we have drawn, and I could not but observe often how much Mr. Lovelace excelled all his four friends in everything they seemed desirous to excel in, but as to wit and vivacity he had no equal there. All the others gave up to him when his lips began to open. The haughty Mowbray would call upon the prating Tourville for silence, when Lovelace was going to speak, and when he had spoken the words, Charming fellow, with a free word of admiration or envy, fell from every mouth. He has indeed so many advantages in his person and manner, that what would be inexcusable in another would, if one watched not over oneself, and did not endeavour to distinguish what is the essence of right and wrong, look becoming in him. Mr. Belford, to my no small vexation and confusion, with the forwardness of a favoured and entrusted friend, singled me out, on Mr. Lovelace's being sent for down, to make me congratulatory compliments on my supposed nuptials, which he did with a caution, not to insist too long on the rigorous vow I had imposed, upon a man so universally admired. See him among twenty men, said he, all of distinction, and nobody is regarded but Mr. Lovelace. It must indeed be confessed that there is, in his whole deportment, a natural dignity, which renders all insolent or imperative demeanour as unnecessary as inexcusable. Then that deceiving sweetness which appears in his smiles, in his accent, in his whole aspect and address, when he thinks it worth his while to oblige or endeavour to attract, how does this show that he was born innocent, as I may say, that he was not naturally the cruel, the boisterous, the impetuous creature, which the wicked company he may have fallen into have made him? For he has, besides, an open, and I think an honest countenance. Don't you think so, my dear? On all these specious appearances have I founded my hopes of seeing him a reformed man. But it is amazing to me, I own, that with so much of the gentleman, such a general knowledge of books and men, such a skill in the learned as well as modern languages, he can take so much delight as he does, in the company of such persons as I have described, and in subjects of frothy impertinence, unworthy of his talents, and his natural and acquired advantages. I can think but of one reason for it, and that must argue a very low mind, his vanity, which makes him desirous of being considered as the head of the people he consorts with, a man to love praise, yet to be content to draw it from such contaminated springs. One compliment passed from Mr. Belford to Mr. Lovelace, which hastened my quitting the shocking company. "'You are a happy man, Mr. Lovelace,' said he, upon some fine speeches made him by Mrs. Sinclair, and assented to by Miss Partington. "'You have so much courage and so much wit, that neither man nor woman can stand before you.' Mr. Belford looked at me when he spoke. "'Yes, my dear, he smilingly looked at me, and he looked upon his complimented friend, and all their assenting and therefore affronting eyes, both men's and women's, were turned upon your Clarissa. At least my self-reproaching heart made me think so, for that would hardly permit my eye to look up. Oh, my dear, were but a woman who gives reason to the world to think her to be in love with a man, 
and this must be believed to be my case, or to what can my supposed voluntary going off with Mr. Lovelace be imputed? To reflect one moment on the exaltation she gives him, and the disgrace she brings upon herself, the low pity, the silent contempt, the insolent sneers and whispers, to which she makes herself obnoxious from a censuring world of both sexes, how would she despise herself? And how much more eligible would she think death itself than such a discovered debasement? What I have thus in general touched upon will account to you why I could not more particularly relate what passed in this evening's conversation, which, as may be gathered from what I have written, abounded with approbatory accusations and supposed witty retorts. End of letter 7